Dennis Leary invites himself to Christmas dinner. But being stuck in the home of a bickering married couple might not have been the best idea. Coming up next on Out of Touchdown. So I'm offering this simple phrase to kids from one to ninety-two. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas to you. Yes, the legendary. Christmas song by Nat King Cole. Gary loves Nat King Cole. Uh, welcome to Out of Touch Zone. My name is Mike DeKalb. On the other end of the Skype line, my co-host, Chad Smart. Smart, is that 18th century French Huguenot? You know, actually, it's Spanish Huguenot. It's really weird. This is going to be a fun episode. I, I mean, this is one of the few 1994 Touch Zone movies that I've actually seen. And what I thought was really interesting is we have a Touch Zone movie, a Hollywood picture, and a Disney picture. Two of them are set at Christmas. One of them is takes place involving a winter sport. And all three of these movies came out in March of 1994. Is that March or Smarch? Smarch. Is that is that your that, that's what that's, that's Chad's is that Smart March? Oh, you don't get it. That's a Simpsons reference. Yeah, someone uh, used it on me the, the other day and, and like, oh, you get it. Simpsons reference. I'm like, vaguely sounds familiar, but no. Smarch. It was all the school calendars were misprinted with a 13th month. The month of Smarch. Oh, Smart. Okay. All right. So it's Christmas in Smarch, and the Touchstone movie that we're going to talk about was released on March the 9th of 1994, and it's called The Ref. It was Christmas Eve in Connecticut. I was minding my own business, breaking into this rich guy's house one day. Anyways, the cops came. I took those two people hostage. Shut up! We have people coming for dinner. Driving down from Boston. You can't stay here. I hate these people. It was a nightmare. It was cops and candles and kids and fruitcake and booze and Santa Claus. Fascinating. Dennis Leary. You want to have sex with him? <laughs> the Ref. Rated R. This is a family affair. The story credit goes to Marie Weiss. Her husband, Jeff, was a producer on the film. And she shares the screenplay credit with her brother-in-law, Richard Lagravenace. Uh, they based the script on the types of drama they'd experience at their own family gatherings. Uh, Weiss had no prior credits. I think I read somewhere that she had worked in advertising. But Lagravenace had two prior screenwriting credits. Uh, the 1989 film Rude Awakening with Cheech Marin and Eric Roberts. I think I vaguely remember that video uh, cover in the store at the Blockbuster. Yeah, I'm with you. I remember the cover. I was trying to think of the movie. I don't. I, I think I was thinking, um, uh, I, I, actually, ironically, a, a Tommy Chong movie. Uh, uh, or well, maybe not, maybe Dennis, I don't know. But yes, I, I vaguely remember Rude Awakening, but I don't think I've ever seen it. And, and I just saw Eric Roberts at the Doctor Who convention. I could have <laughs> asked him about it. And LeGravenace's other screenplay credit is from 1991. It was The Fisher King, which he got an Oscar nomination for. Well, we need a director. We get Ted Demi. He's the nephew of the director, Jonathan Demi. Now, he'd gotten his start as a production assistant at MTV and went on to direct music videos, mostly for a rap genre. And he created Yo! MTV Raps and directed a lot of MTV promos featuring Dennis Theory. 
Uh, he then broke out in 1993 with two different programs, the stand-up special Dennis Leary, No Cure for Cancer. And then he made his feature theatrical debut with the 1993 film, Who's the Man, which of course also starred Dennis Leary and featured Dr. Dre and Ed Lover from Yo! and TV Raps. Uh, as we mentioned, Dennis Leary is the star of The Ref. He plays Gus. He started out as a stand-up comedian in the 1980s and would go on to begin his association with MTV by the end of the decade. He appeared in sketches for the game show Remote Control and also served as a writer on the show. And then in the 1990s, he transitioned to films. He did movies like Strictly Business, Loaded Weapon 1, The Sandlot. He's got a great role in The Sandlot, uh, as I mentioned, Who's the Man?, he also did Demolition Man, and his most recent credit before the ref was Judgment Night. Starring as the bickering couple, we get Judy Davis and Kevin Spacey. Judy Davis plays the character of Caroline. She had appeared on stage and screen in her native Australia, beginning in the late 1970s. Chad, do you remember Judy Davis is Australian? So what's Australian for the ref then? Would that be... Official? The, sort of a... The dango? <laughs> I, 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 I get that. British or Australian, and I just—I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. I thought I, I thought I read. I think on her Wikipedia page it said that when she was in college, she did Romeo and Juliet with Mel Gibson. I'm like, oh, interesting. Uh, for some notable film roles that she had done include uh, the 1984 film A Passage to India, also Impromptu and Barton Fink, both in 1991. And then she started working with Woody Allen. She did the 1990 film Alice, and also Husbands and Wives in 1992. Her most recent credit before the rest. Uh, and starring as her husband, Lloyd, is Kevin Spacey. He started out in TV in the mid-1980s, most notably the crime drama Wise Guy with Ken Wall, before he moved into films such as Rocket Gibraltar, Working Girl. I remember him as the one of the bad guys in See No Evil, Hear No Evil, the Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder comedy. Chad, do you remember that one? I saw that in the theater. I took uh, My friend and I, we would take our dads out to the movies for Father's Day. And it was basically them actually taking us out to see movies we wanted to see. But mm -hmm. uh, I think I mentioned it recently to you because the day that we saw See No Evil, Hear No Evil, we did a double feature with the classic film No Holds Barred, which oh. both starred Joan Severance. But I don't remember Kevin Spacey in See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Yeah, him and him and Joan Severance are like the they're the villains trying to hunt down the whatever the F was money or jewels. I can't remember what was but I remember that's one of those ones that was on video back in the day. And either we either rented it or we recorded it off a of showtime. I remember watching that one a lot. Yeah. And then 1992, Kevin Spacey breaks out with Glengarry Glenn Ross. Uh, he'd done two films after that, both of which were for Disney. In 1992, he did Consenting Adults for Hollywood Pictures. And his most recent film before the ref was Iron Will, which was released in January of 94. We've discussed it on this show. Fantastic movie. Uh, you know, it's, it's weird to think of. I know that Kevin Spacey has kind of become persona non grata, rightfully so in a way. But you, you kind of forget how extremely, extremely talented he was back in the day. And this is his the beginning of his ascension, I should say, with a movie like The Ref, with Touchstone Pictures. Yeah. Uh, we got quite the supporting cast in this movie. I'll, I'll try not to go too deep in them because there's a lot of them. Uh, first of which, we've got Robert Steinmiller Jr., who plays Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis's son. I, I don't remember. I'm not overly familiar with him. I couldn't picture him before and after. I don't think he'd done a lot of work. I think before the ref, I saw that he was in movies like Jack the Bear and also Bingo. Do you remember Bingo? I think it was about a dog, wasn't it? A, a dog named Bingo. B-I-N-G-O. And it wasn't a, but it wasn't a dingo named Bingo. No. That would have oh, been a dingo named Bingo. I, oh, man. There's my next idea. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then we get Christine Baranski. You know, I'll, I'll admit it now, Chad, I've been in love with Christine Baranski for almost 30 years. I, I had a huge crush on her when she was on Sybil. And then you find out this was, uh, I think this was a year or two before Sybil had started. And so by that point, she, she was in Life with Mikey. She was in a Touchstone picture. And her most recent film before this was Adam's Family Value. So another, just like Kevin Spacey, just on her way up. She was going to get so much more work in the late 90s and into the 2000s. Yeah. We also get Glennis Johns. Did Glennis Johns ever appear in a Disney movie? How about Mary Poppins? Mary Pop- she's, she's Mrs. Banks. Oh, does she have a drinking problem? I don't remember. <sighs> but you know what I did find interesting? And I don't know if you know this. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I believe she is still alive. I believe she she's is still 99. Alive. Yeah, she, I, I saw that she was born in 1923. So she'll be 99 this year. That's good for Glennis Johns. Yeah. We have Richard Bright who plays Dennis Leary's buddy Murray in the film. He was also in Who's the Man. There's that, there's that film again. Mm. And I didn't realize it's, he's in all three Godfather films as well. Yeah. Great character actor, Raymond J. Barry, who it's one of those faces. He plays the police chief in this movie. As soon as you see him, you know, you know that guy. And he had just been in a Disney film in 1993, Cool Runnings. He was also in Falling Down with Michael Douglas that year as well. We get the film debut of J.K. Simmons. <laughs> He's still got a little bit of hair in his head, too. I noticed that as well. Uh, and we also have B.D. Wong, who had been in Father of the Bride. He's, his role in The Ref is uncredited, but, uh, yeah, he does return to Touchstone Pictures. The last thing I was going to mention to you, Chad, Dennis Leary, Ted Demi, not the only real MTV personalities in this film. One of the police officers is played by the actor Jim Turner. A little trivia for you, Chad. Do you recognize Jim Turner? Do you know who that is? I did not. And now I'm kind of uh, I'm questioning myself as to why I did not. I, I thought you were going to mention the brother-in-law, but who I who has one of those faces. I'm like, I know that guy, but then I looked him up, and, and there was nothing that of note that I could recall him from. But no, Jim Turner. Jim uh, Turner. I, okay. I always I, – I, whenever we do this, I'm, you, yeah. always, you always seem to – I, I want to stump you, yeah. and it never works, but – Jim Turner, red hair and glasses. He played Randy of the Redwoods on MTV. Mind blown. All right. Well, as we like to do on the show, we will break the film down, mostly just in a series of questions to kind of put our reviews in. And I'll start uh, by posing this question to Chad. Basically, the enjoyment, well, I should say your enjoyment of this film kind of depends on your tolerance of Dennis Leary. So, Chad Smart. Do you like Dennis Leary, especially from this era? This era, Dennis Leary, yes. I did enjoy the No Cure for Cancer stand-up. Yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I watching the film, um, at the end, when the last bits of line that Dennis Leary has where he's, he's kind of insulting Murray – Mm-hmm. I'm like that is pure Dennis Leary. That is not that was not written in the original screenplay. That is him coming up with those lines for himself because that is just token Dennis Leary voice from 1993. Oh yeah, and I read that they they changed the ending as yeah. well. So I wonder if it, when they had to do the the second ending, he was like, oh, I got some dialogue I can write for you, no problem. Yeah, but yeah, I I did. You know, it's interesting because we're looking at these 30 years later, and I, I think kind of going back to Son-in-Law and Polly Shore, it's like. Did these characters or these personas, do they translate well to today? And, mm-hmm. you know, Dennis Leary still out there, still has a career. And I, sure. I never watched Rescue Me, so I don't know how much of the Dennis Leary character carried over to that. But, um, yeah, I, I think this version of Dennis Leary holds up pretty well in today's you know time frame. 
Yeah, I mean, I was, like I said, I was a fan of his at the time. I watched a lot of MTV. I think we discussed it on the last episode when we talked about uh, Duff and, and Blank Check. But, I mean, I, I liked all of his bits. Again, I liked No Cure for Cancer. And I thought, yeah, his persona did carry over to this film quite, pretty well. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like he's supposed to be a criminal. He's a jewel thief, right? But he's he's not, like, he can be menacing, but he's also funny. Like, it works for a dark comedy. I, I mentioned he had just done Judgment Night. I, I never actually seen that, but I, from what I gather, he's like the heavy in that film, right? And uh, he's supposed to be you, more menacing. not seen Judgment Night? I, I have a feeling when this episode drops and when he listens to it, one of our avid listeners will let you know <laughs> how wrong you are for not seeing Judgment Night. I know, I know. And I said, I have the soundtrack. That's the funny part. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like I feel like he's funny in this movie when he needs to be, which is like most of the time, you know, he kind of carries the film. But then he infuses like just the right amount of sincerity to be effective. Like he shows some range when he's talking, when he's kind of talking to their son about like, you don't want to get into this life, but he's not doing it like, he's not trying to, to turn in an Oscar-worthy performance. He's just given like a regular, like I said, like a sincere human being. And I, I, I did enjoy it. Like you don't, you forget, he wound up doing more movies and stuff, but it feels like this is the one that really has that early Dennis Leary persona in it, right? Yeah. And again, but he's not even the best, he's, he's good, but he's not the best part of the cast. And I'll, so my next question to you is simply, how amazing are Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis in their roles? You know, you kind of touched on it earlier and you know we have been um taken to task at times on this podcast for heaping praise upon someone who in today's society is not very well um accepted or liked or uh you know whatever you want to be and it's a shame that kevin spacey has uh kind of killed his own career and you know rightfully so accusation you know allegations against him being what they are but yeah, just watching this and even going back to Iron Will, you're just like, man, he is such a great actor. And, yeah. you know, it's that thing where can you sep separate the art from the artist and just be like Kevin Spacey, real life person, terrible. Kevin Spacey in this film, brilliant. You know, the character yeah. and Judy. Yeah. And he and Judy Davis play a great bickering married couple and they they play off each other very well and and like i said dennis leary is kind of understated in his reaction i, I think he's more of a reactor than a actor oh yeah scenes. for sure yeah yeah I, I couldn't get enough of of kevin spacey and judy davis like you said they they're perfect when they're bickering but they also have dr the dramatic range and they have the comedic chops mm -hmm. when they when they need to like you know they can argue and and then it, and then they they i don't know it's like it's hard to describe it chad it's like it's like they they put these these slight comedic flourishes into their bickering. You know, this is an R-rated comedy because a lot of the the the, the dialogue has such foul language, mm. but they're funny when they're angry. And then you, if you notice, like throughout the film, they kind of goes back and forth, like they're bickering and they start to come around and okay, maybe they're getting back together, and then they start bickering again. But it's but it's not it's not like so heavy-handed or cheesy. Like they they really care about each other. And they do such a good job of sort of balancing out. And it comes right from the very beginning. Like you see them bickering. There's a great scene where Dennis Leary kind of has to sort of lay, put, give them the, the lay of the land or how his rules are going to be in this house as he's taking them hostage. And you see that, how well they work off each other right from the start. Nice. You rich? No. Oh, oh God, no. Not really. No, no. no. Antiques like this ain't cheap. Oh, I, I run an antique store in town. These are all from the it's shop. It's his mother's store. 
So? Well, you made it sound like it was yours. You know, I run an antique. I did not. I said I run it. I didn't oh, say I own it. Oh, come on, I am Lloyd. the manager of the place. Hey, what, what, the hey. let's get one thing straight, okay? From now on, the only person who yells is me. Why? Because I have a gun, okay? People with guns can do whatever they want. Married people without guns, for instance, you, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do not get to yell. Why? No guns. No guns. No yelling. See? Simple little equation. And I wanted to ask one more question about mm. the cast, and that was just simply, you know, were there any other particular standouts in the supporting cast for you? Because, I mean, I, I really enjoyed Raymond J. Barry as the police chief. I mean, they called him lieutenant, but he seemed to be the chief. Um, but I didn't think, like, there was enough of him. Like, his that subplot started pretty strong. It's something you don't see a lot, where it's like, He's this cop and he has to deal with these rich people who want to go over his head to kind of get their way. And I was like, I like where this is going. And then it just kind of fizzled out. Like they didn't know what to, they didn't know how to end that storyline. And so his character sort of disappears. But I really liked what we saw of him on screen. Is there anybody that stood out to you? Um, like I said, the brother-in-law. And I think it's more of just I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I know him from and what. Uh, but I, I think. The, the supporting cast, like you have just said, is is very well rounded. It's they're there. I agree with you that the the police chief storyline just. I think you could have cut it, and no one would have been, you know, it, the movie wouldn't have been any less, because there is no payoff, and it it doesn't really move the story along. It's just something to give you time away from Dennis Leary and and Kevin Spacey and, and Judy Davis. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, you know, I think if you cut that out, maybe bring in the, the, the siblings a little bit more, the sister and brother-in-law oh, yeah. or the brother and sister-in-law and, and give them a little bit more time to, uh, work on. I, yeah, that's, that's basically it. I, you know, the cops being the two cops that keep showing up, one of them, apparently Jim Turner, who, who I did not <laughs> recognize, um, you know, they were interesting, but I think they went a little of them went a long way, and it kind of that and the Santa Claus character, um, kind of yeah. And I know, you know, you kind of need it for the ending, but even that that character was a little more like okay, why 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 is Santa Claus getting drunk and and yeah. and, and again he needed to to progress the storyline, but I think he could have worked that out in a better way. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say the same thing. That we'll transition in. I'm going to ask you some yeah. questions more about the script and the production. Yeah. So that was one of the things yeah. that I, I really wanted to bring up is how the, how the comedy elements work. You know, mm -hmm. I could have done without those Keystone Cops. You know, like they have a they have a important VHS tape yeah. and they re accidentally record over it. I'm like, okay, that's a little bit too. Bumbling. Yeah, the fact that no one knows how to operate a remote control. In yeah. But it's like, I mean, it's just, it's kind of the cheap hijinks. And like you said, the whole time you're watching this Santa Claus character, you're like, okay, what's going on with this? And it finally pays off at the end, but it takes a long way to get there. But, um, but I will say, yeah, I just go right to you with the next question, which is, yeah, do those comedy elements work? You know, like I, I felt like they were going to go more juvenile at the, at first, you know, when Dennis Leary is, is stealing the jewels, he gets sprayed with cat urine. Um, and then later when he's trying to escape from the house, a dog bites him in the butt. You know, but then from that point on, like all the jokes came in the form of like really blunt dialogue with colorful language, you know, and I thought it's I can give them credit for it didn't go where I was expecting it to go. I thought it was going to be kind of cheap hijinks and it wound up being a little bit better. Did it work for you? It did. I, I I'll say more when I get to my review section. Just a little tease. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, yeah, and like I said, I, I, I was really surprised. I, again, I'd seen it years ago. Mm -hmm. I owned it on DVD for a long time. And watching it this past week, there were actually like some real laugh out loud moments for me. You know, there was that one moment when they're, when they're, he's got them tied up and he's on the phone and they start arguing and he pulls out the little sink spray for the, the hose thing oh, yeah. and just starts, oh my God, that just made me <laughs> laugh hysterically for some reason. Um, well, can I ask you as well, the, the other question was, was this film too obvious? You know, it seems like it starts out with the marriage counseling trope to like establish the characters. And then I, said, I kind of, you feel like you're waiting for Gus to just solve their problems. But I like how they kind of figure it out themselves. Like, I, did it go where you were expecting or did you think it was going to be a little bit more Dennis Leary is the therapist they didn't know they needed? Yes and no. And yes, yes. It, I thought Dennis Leary would be the one to give them the advice that they needed. But really, like you said, it's them figuring it out for themselves. Uh, mm -hmm. I yeah, I think that's one of the aspects that actually kind of watching it again didn't didn't really hold up for me is the fact that at the dinner scene and the family starts questioning Dennis Leary about him being the doctor because they think he's the marriage uh, counselor and and he has like no answers he has nothing to say and he's just like I, I would have I was expecting him to at least fake it a little better. Mm -hmm. and, and instead of just being like, oh, no, these people are crazy. I, you know, I deal with wackos all the time. And it's like that, you know, that that didn't that aspect did not work for me. But I like and, and it obviously comes around to the conclusion that um, I, I think you see coming from the first five minutes if you've ever seen a movie before. But it gets there in a way that is somewhat believable. Yeah. Like you said, I, I actually kind of like I disagree with you in the sense that I like that. This would have, it would have been so cheesy if if the the family would have questioned him thinking he was the the doctor and then he would have had like these profound statements. Mm. You know, I thought that was a little more more believable that he was just like, no, I, I don't know. These people are crazy, like you said. Yeah. yeah. And I like yeah, like for the most point. of the second half of the movie, like you mentioned, he's reacting. Like I, I there's a lot of shots where there's a there's a couple scenes in particular where like Judy Davis and Kevin Spacey are just going at each other mm. and you can see Dennis Leary just in the background. And he's just he's just observing. Like he's literally just, he's just listening and he doesn't, he, I noticed he doesn't necessarily choose sides mm -hmm. in the film too, which is, it's kind of nice because it would have been so easy for him to play favorites. And then all of a sudden, then they, then they bicker even more because they think that, you know, oh, that Dennis Leary's character's on their, on their side or not on their side. You know, that very first moment where he gives advice, I thought was really, really excellent. And that is when uh, he's wants a cigarette and, and he, basically Caroline, the Caroline character says, I've stopped smoking and. And he's like, no, you haven't. And then he finds out. And then, and then of course he goes back to her and it says, like, you said you were going to stop. You promised your husband you were going to stop smoking and you didn't, you know? And then of course he looked at, at Kevin Spacey gets smug. And then he says, makes that comment about like, did you miss that stop sign when they were driving to the house? Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. So that was, it was a nice little subtle touch. And like you said, it doesn't, um, he's not supposed to be the therapist. They, they don't, it'd be so easy for a movie to make him the therapist. And instead they just make him a criminal listening along and trying to wing it and keep up the charade so that he can get out of town, I guess. Right? No, I think you make a good point. I think for me, maybe I wanted something in the middle between two schmaltzy of a therapist, you know, having the answers and what I got in this movie. So yeah. at, least, at least try to fake it, even if it is uh, not correct, but just not be so, so oblivious, I guess. No, that's yeah. true. That's true. Uh, the last yeah. question, and I hope I don't sound too harsh on this is, <laughs> Chad, how effective was the character of Jesse, their son? Do we really need him in this movie? No. 
And I hadn't really thought about it until you brought it up. Um, and, and that's probably because I didn't think about the character at all. Like they're the black, kind of like the, the police chief storyline, the blackmail uh, subplot with, with the son and JK Simmons really doesn't go anywhere. Uh, no. Again, it's more Jesse being there is more of a, a character needed for the last 10 minutes of the film. And to help to help Dennis Leary, but if you take him out, and you can still have a bickering, you know, married couple, just without a kid. Yeah, I mean, I guess it does feel like he's forced in there just so that uh, Dennis Leary can kind of tell him, you know, because like at one point he he says, "I want to come run away with you. I can't stay here, and you know, living in the suburbs is terrible." And, and Dennis Leary asks him basically, "No, you don't want you don't want this life. You got it good." And, and all that. And I, I, the more I thought about it when I was putting my notes together for this episode is that I was thinking, like, if the characters, if they didn't have a kid, would that have been a good point of conflict for them? Mm-hmm. Maybe that could, it could have been something they would – usually when you see movies with bickering couples, they bring up a lot of old stories. And they did in this movie. They brought up how they were – when they were first married and stuff like that. It would have been so easy for the – if they didn't have a kid, they could easily bring up some kind of conflict about I wanted one and you didn't or vice versa – and that would be more, just more for Dennis Leary to kind of listen in on. And to be honest with you, they, they didn't necessarily seem like the nurturing type, you know? I mean, there's one scene toward the end where where Judy Davis is kind of telling him, oh, it's okay, we'll, we'll be there for you. And, you know, we're not we're not getting a divorce and all this stuff. But, yeah, I just, I felt like, and the kid, the kid is fine. The kid, the kid yeah. is, is a good, solid actor. And But that was, yeah, that, I all, in a way, I almost wish there was more with, Dennis Leary, Kevin Spacey, and Judy Davis, mm-hmm. especially like before the party shows up. Yeah. But I get, you know, you can't ask for that much. You got to have some kind of subplot to keep them. the movie's only what, 97 minutes long, mm-hmm. you know, but it did step definitely feel like the cop subplot, the, the subplot with the military school and JK Simmons. Yeah, you're right. They didn't, they didn't quite go anywhere. They should have been, it was like a stage play. It could have all just mm-hmm. been in the house and not gone anywhere else. And I would have been just fine with that. Would have required yeah. just more scenarios, more, more, dialogue to come up and more conflicts that would have more elements that or, or more past experiences they would argue about but i would have been totally fine with that yeah. but that's just me uh, i'm with you on that one so it's not just yeah. you it's maybe it's just us well it's but then justice. besides besides us what did the other prominent <laughs> critics of the era have to say about this film chat in with some reviews all right well first we go as always to our the esteemed roger ebert who says material like this is only as good as the acting and writing the ref is skillful in both areas. Dennis Leary, who has a tendency, like many stand-up comics, to start shouting and try to make points with overkill, here creates an entertaining character. And Davis and Spacey, both naturally verbal, develop a manic counterpoint in their arguments that elevates them in a sort of art form. Three stars. Okay, okay. And then Karen James of the New York Times, yes, that Karen James, says... And, and I think she echoes a point that you've made a couple of times in the show. She says, don't be misled by commercials that make the ref look like slapstick silliness. This is a grown up film that delights in undermining Christmas, Christmas cliches. Some of us are bound to love a movie in which watching It's a Wonderful Life leads to minor calamity. The hmm. director, Ted Demi, is 30 years old and the ref benefits from his youthful irre- irreverence as well as his self-assurance and background. Though the ref is technically a Disney film, it is absolutely not for children. The language <laughs> approximates what Beavis and Butthead might say in their private moments and will make some adults red-faced. Uh-huh. 
Well, uh, that was the two of them. Chad, I want you to give me on a scale of one to ten, where do you come down on the ref? This this one is kind of hard because it, it's kind of like The Nightmare Before Christmas for me, where this is a movie that I have seen multiple times before. I enjoy this film, but when I watched it, I don't know if it's, you know, I just had surgery uh, a few days before watching this. And so maybe I was still in that surgical haze, but it, I didn't find it as funny as I have in previous viewings. I, and I was like, okay, it's good, but it's, it, it, you know, at 97 minutes, it's kind of a slog. It's like, ah, but I'm, I'm willing to, again, take that one viewing as the abnormally ab, abnormation anomaly anomaly. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. I don't know. Um, but I'm going to give this a six. I uh, probably should rank it a seven, but I'm going to give it a six just for safety. And again, I, I go back to Kevin Spacey. Why did you have to kill your career by being a horrible person? Because mm-hmm. he is just fantastic in this film and Dennis Leary is, he's the Dennis Leary that I expected to get with this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the same boat in the sense that, like I said, I was saw it back in the day. I remember really liking it. And, but different from you, when I saw it just now, I was in a, I was in a mood to watch a movie. Like, it's, it had been a long week. I wanted to relax. And it took me out of my problems. And Again, I could live with some of the subplots because it just it kind of padded it out and it kept it from being maybe it would have gotten stale if it would have just been in the house the whole time. And so I will say I probably went a little bit higher just because it, it hit me at just the right moment mm. that I needed to hit me. And I gave it an eight out of ten. Mm, okay. Um, mostly because when I was looking back over it when it was all done, I could not get over how perfectly cast the film was. Like everybody who's in their particular role is just so well cast in that part. You know, and it has a really clever premise because usually the idea of a criminal taking somebody hostage in, in, in their house, the home invasion stories, those are always reserved for thrillers for the most part. So I can give them credit for doing a comedy. Um, Chad, have you ever seen – there was a movie that came out in the 50s and it was remade in the early part of the 90s. It was called The Desperate Hours. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. No, that was, I haven't seen that one. Okay, the original movie was Humphrey Bogart and then in the 1990 version it's Mickey Rourke. And, and Anthony Hopkins is, is, I think Anthony Hopkins and Mimi Rogers play the couple that, that are sort of held hostage in their house while these criminals are waiting to get out of town. It's the same kind of concept, but it's this heavy drama. The bogey one from the 50s is really heavy. And I give them credit for making that same premise and, and making me laugh and putting a smile on my face. And like I said, I laughed out loud a couple of times, which it's I don't do that anymore, especially for a movie that I've already seen a couple of times. But I give them credit there. Uh, from a trivia standpoint, I did notice this was the very first Touchstone or Disney film for producer Jerry Bruckheimer and his partner Don Simpson. Yes, we're going to see a lot of Bruckheimer movies, but of all the movies to be the first one in his in his relationship, it was The Ref, which I thought that was kind of interesting enough. Um, this is kind of called up. I think I saw this on Wikipedia and also some other research as well. But the film The Ref was one of the 500 films that was on the first round of nominations for AFI's list of the 100 best comedies. I give him credit there. I mean, it's, I mean, it it doesn't sound like much at the same time. It's like 500, you know, I'm sure there's 500 other comedies you would have thought of before you think of the ref sometimes, but uh, I give him credit for that one too. Uh, and the last thing, because I think Chad's got a little bit of extra homework on this. I did see that it was featured on entertainment weekly's list of the top 50 movies that you haven't seen, which was a, a list that covered the years 1991 to 2011. Yes. I was curious 
uh, when I saw that to see what was on the list. And it the list came out in 2012, so you know a, a decade ago. And it's it's an interesting list. I, I have the top six plus three honorable mentions that uh, I just want to point out because uh, were they ranked? Uh, they were ranked. Well, I mean, they were just ranked one through fifty. So I'm guessing. I don't know if they are ranked, but we'll call them rankings for sake of argument. And the mm-hmm. ref came in at number 41. Um, huh. okay. And uh, at number 22 was the Iron Giant. Still have not seen that. <laughs> well, Entertainment Weekly thinks you should. And, yeah. they, and I guess they're right. The 50 films that you haven't seen. Uh, number 21 was Idiocracy, the okay. greatest documentary ever made. Yeah. Uh, number so, I, saw, I, saw, I saw that in the theater. <laughs> the one week it was in theaters. Uh, number 17, you know, I've talked on the show before about after we did Pretty Woman, I kind of went down a, a Richard Gere rabbit hole and, and I have a newfound respect for him as an actor. Uh, number, number 17 was a movie, Hachi, Hachi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correct, A Dog's Tale, which is all about him kind of befriending this random dog and they would always hang out in the town square together. Uh, it's oh, a really good movie. If you have not seen it, that's I, I so funny. It. My my wife's co my wife's old boss used to have this poster on his office wall, mm-hmm. and it was one of those ones where it's got like a hundred icons, and then whenever it's, it's basically a hundred movies that are like the best hundred movies. Mm-hmm. And every time you watch them, you like scratch them off, and there's like an image underneath. Yeah. And he showed me the list, and I was like, I've seen like eighty five of these, and one of them was that Hachi movie. Okay. I'm like, that was on that list, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I recommend, you know, one of these weekends, free, check it out. Okay. Or, or whoever, it, you know, I know you're doing the A through Z film challenge with your wife for film introduction. Mm-hmm. If you get to H, if you can't think of anything, go with Hachi. Hachi, okay. Uh, number six uh, was a film, I'm only mentioning it at number six, just because it was a movie that I had high hopes for when it came out. And uh, I don't know if it fully lived up to him, but that's Bubba Hotep. Uh, that, that's one. I saw it in the theater. It's one of those movies that I've always said, that's the example I use when you cannot make a cult movie. Yeah. Cult movies become cult movies on their own. You know, they have to be unintentionally funny or, or something. That movie was like the the people that made it went out to make a cult movie. Like, and and I just, I did, I didn't buy into it really. Yeah. Uh, number five was broken English, which I'm not familiar with. No. Number four is box of moonlight, which I have heard of, but couldn't tell you anything about. Same, same. Number three is Bamboozled. I saw that in a film class in college. I wasn't a huge fan. I'm not a big Spike Lee fan, okay. but but I could see why people like that one. Yeah. Number two, a film I'm going to guess you have seen, Backbeat. You know, I have not. <laughs> and I remember when it came out, because I remember there was like, mm-hmm. I think some of, some of the music was done by like Dave Grohl and, mm-hmm. and actual musicians, like, like popular grunge musicians at the time, but... Much I love the Beatles. It's just one that I have not gone around to see in. Yeah. Okay. And then the number one film on their list was 24 Hour Party People. Now, see, I've seen that. I think okay. it's a little overrated. Um, I like the premise. and I, I like the concept because, like, it's all about the guy who founded Factory Records. And so they've got a lot of stuff with uh, Joy Division and New Order. And, and Steve Coogan's really good. But it, it was fine. I, I know a lot of people loved it when it hit DVD and stuff. But I, I thought it was okay. Okay. Yeah, I've not seen it, so... But that's Entertainment Weekly's, and unfortunately, I could not find an Entertainment Weekly review of The Ref. So maybe they hadn't seen it at that time either. So, well, well, I guess if it's on their on their list of films you haven't seen, maybe that explains it. Well, actually, it's funny you mentioned that because you know, I, again, I, I never want to just spout off Wikipedia when we do this show. Well, I, I like to do a little 
dig a little bit deeper. But on the ref's Wikipedia page, it said that Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly gave it a C minus. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which again, I, I know he's always he's a harsh critic. I'll give him credit there, but. Uh, Ebert. I'm glad that Ebert seemed to like this. <laughs> All right. Well, always like to look at if there's a personal connection. You know, for the for the cast this wide and, and much of these great character actors, I, I got nothing, Chad. I don't think I've you ever come across any of them or met any of them at a, at a, at a screening or anything. Yeah. No. Nope. No. And then as far as a, from a legacy standpoint, I mean, there are no sequels that I am surprised it hasn't mm -hmm. been rebooted in, in a way, but I would think that the legacy of this film, I, I got two really for you. The first one is I think it, it really cemented the rise of its stars. Like Judy Davis was 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 well known in, in on stage and and had done like I said artsy films. It kind of it's the first time I ever really saw her, and I started seeing her more and more after that. Again, we've mentioned Kevin Spacey. This is the beginning his of his upward trajectory as well. And then Dennis Leary again he, to to go off of MTV and right into features. I mean, I, I, did you ever see Who's the Man, Chad? I, I probably I doubt it, right? I have not, but apparently I'm going to have to after we get done recording this. I mean, you got to, I mean, I was a huge Owen TV Raps fan. Mm. I watched that show every day after school. I was excited when it came out. I did see it. I don't know if I saw it in the theater, but I saw it as soon as it hit video. I own the soundtrack. I still have the soundtrack to this day. And it, it was right in that perfect pocket for me where it was like mid 90 or early 90s hip hop. And so I, I did enjoy it. And Dennis Leary's got a good small part in it, but this is the one that kind of, this movie kind of made him a big star, I think. And so I can, I think that's where, the film's legacy lies. And the other thing I, I thought from a legacy standpoint is this has become like a Christmas staple, but it's like that underrated Christmas staple. You know, like I mentioned, if, if Entertainment Weekly is putting it on the list of movies you haven't seen, I'm always surprised, or, or maybe I shouldn't be surprised at how many people I meet if they say, what's your favorite Christmas movie or something like that. And if I throw the ref out there, almost there's always going to be somebody, if there's a group of people, at least one person in the group will be like, oh my God, what a great choice. I love that movie. And I'm sure you're the same way, right? I'm, do you ever get people talk about the ref when it comes to Christmas movies and, and your parties and gatherings? I mean, I couldn't tell you the last time that the ref came up in a discussion of Christmas films. But, really? Okay. But I also couldn't tell you the last time that I had a discussion about Christmas films. So. <laughs> I feel like I said, I, I used to own this on DVD and I feel like I watched this movie with my wife and my sister one year around Christmas time because they had never seen, or at least my wife had never seen it. But yeah. And, and now watching it again, I mean, I'm, I mean, we're here we are watching it in March, but I wonder when February rolls around or when December rolls around, if we want to give another sh a shot, uh, maybe I, maybe I give it another year or so, but mm. I can see watching this again, but uh, Chad, any, you know, is there any final thoughts before we move on chat about the ref? Uh, I can't wait till we get to the box office. Cause I want to know why this film was released in March or smarch. Oh God, who knows? Yeah. I guess again, the last thing I'll say, I just think it's a terrific film, you know, and I, I think you have a good idea of where it's going, but you still enjoy the ride. Like I said, it's a, it's like a stage play that's all set in one location. And even when it kind of gets sentimental at the end, I, I, I worked, you know, and I think it's a credit to the actors. You know, I feel like we just talked about on the last episode with My Father the Hero, when that movie gets sentimental at the end, it just, it was eye rolling. Whereas this one, it worked. And so I'm really glad that I saw this because it's a great entry in the Touchstone catalog. Wait a second. You're the guy. Shut up. This isn't your M.O. You only knock over estates. But hostages, that's a no-win situation. You too, huh? You know what this family needs? A mute. Let me just say it one more time. I have a gun. It's loaded. Shut up, okay? Yes, but we have people coming for dinner. See, I they're mean, driving down from Boston. Minute. It's it's traditional. Five they do it extra every year. people. What are you going to do, tie us all up? Dinner's canceled. 
Well, but we can't cancel dinner. I mean, they're on the road. We can't put them off. They'll be here by Should nine. Should I just shoot one of you guys in the foot? Would that get the point across? Listen, if the police have a curfew, they might do house-to-house searches. House-to-house searches, you see. You, you can't stay here. But that would be very bad for you, really. I can't leave until my partner calls. How do you know he'll call? He'll call. All right, we got two more wintry movies that were released in March of 1994 by Disney that we're going to give a brief look at. We'll start with the film released by Hollywood Pictures on March 4th of 1994, and it was called Angie. My mother left when I was three. She's a daughter searching for answers. You should have told me about her pop. I could take it. A friend looking for help. You got a baby now, Angela. But I a don't baby. deserve him. You don't deserve him. You're his mother. And a woman on a journey. I screwed up, okay? I screwed up big. To discover herself. I ain't going nowhere. Academy Award winner Gina Davis is Angie. Rated R. Starts Friday, March 4th at a theater near you. This was based on a novel called Angie I Says, written by Avra Wing. The screenplay adaptation is by Todd Graff. I know him more as an actor, Chad. I remember him in the movies like The Abyss, and I love Opportunity Knocks with Dana Carvey. I, 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 know, I know I've sung that movie's praises. You've seen that one, right? Oh, that's a great film. Is, is he the partner of... Yes. Of Dana Carvey? Yeah. No, Opportunity Knox is, I don't know if it's on the list of films you haven't seen, but if you have not seen it, highly, highly recommend Opportunity Knox. Yeah. Another one of those just underrated mid-budget comedies, yeah. kind of a star vehicle for Dana Carvey. And yet, yeah, it was, it was put a smile on my face. Yeah. Watch that one, not Master of Disguise, which okay. is another star vehicle for Dana Carvey that should never be seen. That's true. That's true. But Todd Graff, not in addition to acting, he had also done some screenwriting. He had three credits in the previous two years before Angie, and that was movies Used People, Fly by Night, a hip-hop drama, not overly familiar. And then he also wrote the English-language remake of The Vanishing. Uh, Angie was directed by Martha Coolidge. Chad, I know you're a big Martha Coolidge fan because in addition to making Valley Girl, she also made Real Genius. It's a classic film I watched a few months ago, and it holds up wonderfully. Val Kilmer, so great in that film. William Atherton and... Uh, I can't think of it. Michelle Meinrich, Meinrich, who I don't know how long it was before I realized that she was also in Revenge of the Nerds. So, <laughs> Well, Martha Coolidge's most recent film before this was Lost in Yonkers, based on the play by Neil Simon. Well, the premise is simple. I mean, I guess it's Gina Davis plays a single woman in Brooklyn. Hey, Gina Davis over here. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Mike, I'm going to do my whole thing, like talking like with the Brooklyn accent, because that's what hey. Gina, Gina Davis did. Hey, Gina yeah. Davis over here. She's a single woman, and she gets pregnant. Yo, and she's gonna, yo she's Angela. If she wants to be with her with the child's father or not. Oh, uh, sorry. I, won't, I promise <laughs> myself I wouldn't do that too long. But uh, And then James Gandolfini, uh, Tony Soprano himself, mm. plays the father of her child. Stephen Ray... The Irish actor plays her love interest. You know, we get Aida Torturo plays her sister. It's got a huge cast of a lot of really recognizable faces. Um, speaking of, I always like to look and see if some of these Touchstone or the Hollywood pictures or Disney films have any kind of connection with the actors having done other Disney films recently. And this was the third Hollywood picture already for James Gandolfini. He had done A Stranger Among Us and Money for Nothing. I mentioned Aida Turturro. I totally forgot. She plays a prostitute in What About Bob and a police officer in Life with Mikey. Hmm. Two touchstone movies for Aida Turturro. Uh, Gene Davis's father, hey, my father, is played by Philip Bosco. He was he played a detective in Three Men and a Baby. He was also in Straight Talk for Hollywood Pictures. And I, I say this for the last, because I, 
I waited. I, I waited as you were just talking about the the brother-in-law character in, mm. in the ref, and you're like, who is that guy? Adam Lefevre. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He is in Angie, and it's okay. so funny because I'm I, I was watching Angie. Actually, I watched it today, and he comes up. He plays like a security guard at this museum that has to kick Gina Davis out because she's eating because mm. she's pregnant and That's she's right. feeling nauseous. And of course, he's got a Brooklyn accent. Dude, we got to get out of this museum, eh? And I was like, that's the brother from the ref. So oh. we get an actor who was in two of the three movies we're discussing. And on this that's interesting because I watched Angie the day before I watched the ref. So that's. Ah, so he, you weren't supposed to notice him. He's one of yeah. those character actors. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, Chet, I, I, we, we don't really review these films. And I talk about like how we sometimes I, I wish we called the, 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 the show out of Hollywood whenever mm-hmm. we get a really good Hollywood. Hollywood picture, you know, I, I like the air up there. That's the other Hollywood picture mm. we had so far in 1994. But this one, man, I, I, I had a tough time with it toward the end because it was just such thick, heavy melodrama, and it really wore on me by the time it was over. Like I, I just, I had a, I, I kind of wound up fast forwarding a little bit through the end because I'm like, okay, I know where this is going. It's just, it's a little bit too much. You know, it's was, it was based on a novel, so it just felt like so much was happening that like everything puts Angie into crisis mode. Then this happens and then this happens. And I mean, I know they say drama is, you know, life, all the boring parts taken out, but this was just like all the boring parts were gone. Now you're just getting all the stuff that's going to push drama forward. Yeah. My, my first initial thought was, Oh man, I remember the early nineties when Stephen Ray was a thing uh, Mm. because he was in a lot of the, I believe the Neil Jordan films and yeah. Yeah, and, and and I couldn't tell you the last movie that I saw that Stephen Ray was in, and no disrespect to Stephen Ray, it's just I don't know, maybe he's making movies with Vincent Spano, and I just don't realize it. But the other aspect that I think what took me out of this film, and this is becoming probably my least favorite movie trope, is, and I understand it happens in real life too, but I really hate it when people don't talk to each other and they mm-hmm. don't ask questions. They don't have conversations. So like the whole relationship between Angie and her stepmother and, you know, she's like, Oh, you know, I hate this woman because my, my father cheated on my mom with her. And, and then you find out things that were happening with the mom and, and everything. And then same way with the relationship with Stephen Ray. It's just, yeah, I was just like, oh, no, just, if you would have talked, this movie would have been 30 minutes long and it would have been fine. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, it, it's a shame because the, the cast is good, but yeah, mm-hmm. the rest of the movie is just kind of, eh, yeah. you know, and then from a, like from a touchstone picture standpoint, like I said, it, it had elements of the good mother. It reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of the good mother. It also reminded me a lot of Stella, but those were, this was a little bit more adult, right? This is a Hollywood picture. So we're getting a lot of, it's, it's a little bit more gritty, and I, I was joking with you before we got on the air. This movie has the longest mm-hmm. birth scene I have ever seen in a movie where it was just like, could it just end already? Like, okay, just, I, I know the labor takes a long time. But I don't need to see the whole thing on screen. Like this movie is padded out with, with scenes like that. You know, there's a, and then there, I think that what really did it for me where I had, I couldn't stand much more of it is after her baby was born, there's this, I, mean, I swear there's like a 10 minutes section where she, the baby's crying the whole mm-hmm. time. And you're like, okay, maybe that works for dramatic effect. But as a viewer, you're just like, oh, my God, make, make it stop. Make it stop. Unless, maybe I'm supposed to be putting in the mindset of the Angie character. I guess. I don't know. But like I said, Hollywood Pictures is, is definitely hit or miss. I, I enjoy some of their, their thrillers or their comedies. But when they go dramas, 
I don't know. Just like I said, very heavy-handed. And, hey, Gina Davis over here. We got you a thick Brooklyn accent. Even though I, I did look it up. She is Italian in mm-hmm. real life. I, I, I wasn't really overly familiar with her ethnicity. But, I, you know, it just it just goes right off the bat. that She's got the voiceover, you know. And mm-hmm. then it's just, hey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm over here. And I got this guy. And, then, you know, and uh, yeah. I don't know. All right. Now, I, I, the only thing I'm going to say, which has nothing to do with Angie, but just looking up Stephen Ray's filmography, who he's still working, so good for him. But I just want to point out that in 2007, he made a movie called Until Death, where his co-star, the lead actor, was Jean-Claude Van Damme. So, oh, JCVD, always got love for him. <laughs> All right. Well, the other film we're going to talk about was released by Disney Pictures. It came out on March 25th of 1994, and it's called D2, The Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks are playing for the world championship. But their competition isn't playing fair. TV USA is going down. No, it's more than just a game. It's personal. Beat them good. Real good. Emilio Estevez. P2, the Mighty Ducks are back. Rated PG. Starts Friday, March 25th at a theater near you. Everyone's back for the sequel, for the most part. We get the same screenwriter, Stephen Brill. But the directing duties were turned over to Sam Weissman. He was a longtime TV director making his feature debut. That's kind of Touchstone's thing. So good for Walt Disney Pictures for extending the job to someone just starting out. As I mentioned, Emilio Estevez and his Ducks are returning to compete in the Goodwill Games for Team USA. Uh, Like I said, pretty much virtually all of the cast is back. It's only... We're only a year and a half removed, and so I give them credit for for doing it so quickly because the cast, they all look the same, right? They haven't aged that dramatically, uh, you know. From a personnel connection standpoint, any of the other actors in this film and some Disney films recently, well, we get Catherine Irby, who played the daughter in What About Bob in 1992. And we also have Michael Tucker. I mean, that face, as soon as you see him, you're like, that's the guy from L.A. Law. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you said that when you watched this movie, but I'm like, doom, that's the L.A. Law guy. I had to look it up. He was also in Tin Men for Touchdown. Which is what I said that. when I watched this movie. I'm like, that's the Tin Men men, men guy. That's the Tin Men man. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, you know, Chad, I, I will say, if you, you know, to give our little brief mm. review, I enjoyed the first film. And, you know, I love hockey. So it was nice to see them back. Plus, we get, we get Keenan Thompson in his <laughs> film debut. But it was definitely cheesy and kind of aimed squarely at kids. But it's still fun. I mean, I... It's one of those ones that it's on Disney Plus. Throw it on, especially if you've watched the first one. And it's just more of the same. And and it's it'll, it's enough to kind of like I said, make you forget about your problems and enjoy some hockey. But it is it is so cheesy. <laughs> yeah, you know, and this is a movie that I watched for the first time probably a couple of years ago, and I remember enjoying it at the time. And but kind of like the ref, where I watched it this this last time in preparation for the show, and I'm just like, okay, it's it's fine. It's it you know it's. 90 minutes and it flies by. Um, but yeah, I don't, they're not, they're not, you know, making a new mold with this one. They're not mm-hmm. uh, doing anything really crazy. It's, it's kind of by the books and, but it's, it's fun to see the duck. And like I said, I enjoyed the mighty ducks TV series on Disney plus, not a sponsor. It's going to be sad that, that Estevez is not back for season two, but this was, a, this is a fine, fine movie. I don't know how much of it is actually, uh, Legal in when you're playing hockey, but <laughs> you know what? No one cares. You don't. You're not watching this movie for authenticity. You're, yeah, 
It's a hockey movie. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, like we're going to be lassoing people on the ice. Come on. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's silly. It's goofy fun, you know, but I, again, as a hockey fan, what, what I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. When, it, when these movies came out, I remember I had a niece who was very, very young. And I remember when I was telling her about hockey, she was like, Oh, I like the mighty ducks team. And I was like, really? And she goes, yeah. Cause I like the movies. Hmm. And I was just thinking, like, that's awesome that this movie, these movies got people into hockey yeah. at a time when hockey was really blowing up. That's when I got I got into hockey at the same time that the first movie had come out, mm. you know. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the third one because I, I feel like I saw the third one on Disney Channel late one night years ago. I don't remember anything about it. I don't know how many of the ducks are actually in it, like how many of the characters. Yeah. So it's just, again, it's, it's another one of those ones you just put on. It, it's a worthy entry in the Disney catalog. Um, I like the, I like there's a lot of really clever cameos, you know, we get Wayne Gretzky, we get Kareem, you get all these people in it and it was, and it was fun. And it's, it's very nineties, you know, the nineties soundtrack, the, the way that it's shot, it kind of made a lot of blank check, mm-hmm. you know, which no surprise having come out a month earlier from the same studio. And but, yeah, and I did like, and you can correct me when the Anaheim ducks actually took the ice in, in real life, but the fact that the climax of the film takes place at the pond in Anaheim mm-hmm. and you know I'm sure that was done to try and get people to go actually go to the Ducks games in real mm-hmm. life if you're living there but so that was nice to see on camera yeah and they busted out the jerseys the yeah. egg the eggplant I was called that's the color of the pants mm-hmm. for the Mighty Ducks jerseys with eggplant yes to answer your question they started that season so okay. that started in October of 93 this movie came out at the tail end of their very first season yeah but uh, all right. Well, in conclusion, like we always like to do on the show, let's look at the box office performance. Not the greatest, at least for two of the three films. Uh, let's go chronological rather than starting with a touch show film like we usually do. And so in that case, we're going to start with Angie, which was released on March the 4th. It finished seventh on its opening weekend with $2.8 million. The other films that opened against it were the comedy Greedy, which finished in second place, and also The Chase, Charlie Sheen, that would finish in fifth place. The other Disney films that were on the chart at the time were Blank Check was in eighth, and My Father the Hero was down in 15th place. Angie drops to ninth place in, in its second week. It gets more screens, but it makes the same amount of money, and that's this is following the release of the films it has to compete against that week, which would have been Guarding Tess, Lightning Jack, and our next touchstone film, The Ref. I did like to point out, though, that we had three new movies and Angie only dropped two places. So I think that's a good sign, right? Yeah. And its following week, it, it falls all the way to 12th place and then drops off the box office charts. After three weeks, it only grosses $9.4 million in its entire theatrical run. But the budget, Chad, the budget was $26 million. Hey, uh, you got to pay off some of my guys. You know what I mean? If you're going to make this movie here in Brooklyn. I mean, maybe that's what it was, or they had to give a bunch of money to the medical society to get how authentic the gynecology, <laughs> the gynecologist was in this film. Like, I don't know. Where did well, the 26 I'm curi- million go? I'm curious what Gina Davis asking price was, you know, because this would have been after her Oscar win for Accidental Tourist and after the success of Thelma and Louise. So maybe she yeah. was – and before Cutthroat Island. So, Well, I was going to save it because it wasn't really – uh, Hollywood picture. It wasn't really a touchstone picture. I'll bring it up when we get into the analysis of the box office, but okay. Gina Davis was not supposed to be the star of this film. <laughs> um, okay, well, the next film we'll, we'll look at was the touchstone film. That was The Ref, released on March 9th, a Wednesday, and very peculiar at that time, a Wednesday release in the month of March for a Christmas movie. <laughs> 
Uh, it finished fourth in its opening weekend with only $3 million. Again, the other films that opened against it were Guarding Tess, which was first place. Lightning Jack was second place. And we also get limited releases of Four Weddings and a Funeral and The Hudsucker Proxy. The Disney films on the chart at that time, Angie was in ninth place. Blank Check was in 12th place. It drops down to seventh place in its second week following the release of Naked Gun, 33 and a Third, Monkey Trouble. Do we remember Monkey Trouble, Chad? It's a young Thora Birch and a monkey. Stop me if I've said this on the show before, but I recently watched that movie within probably the last two to three months. Really? And what can uh, you say about Monkey Trouble? I mean, it's Harvey Keitel doing a kid's movie. So oh, you got man. that going for it. Uh, it so there's it, full frontal male nudity. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, it's kind of like Mighty Ducks, where it's a movie aimed at kids, so don't think too hard about it, but it's fun. Yeah, and then we also get the the limited release of the Ron Howard movie, The Paper, which was in, in the second week of March there. Um, and it's next week, the ref falls all the way to 12th and then drops off the box office charts after three weeks. Tell me that sounds familiar, just like Angie. It falls to <laughs> basically falls to 12th place and then leaves after three weeks. But it does gross a little bit more. It grosses $11.4 million during its theatrical run. I could not find the budget info for that film. Lastly, let's get something positive. We'll end on a good note. D2, The Mighty Ducks, released March 25th. On its opening weekend, it finishes first with $10.4 million. The other film that opened against it, another sports movie, Above the Rim, which finished in fifth place. Chad, I love basketball. I love white men can't jump. I love blue chips. I've never seen Above the Rim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's one of those, is that one, Tupac? One of those ones. I'm sorry? Is that Tupac? Yes, that is Tupac. Okay. Yeah, with the blade, razor blade inside of his cheek. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other Disney film that was on the charts when D2 opened was The Ref, which was in its last week on the charts in 12th place. And its second week, Mighty Ducks drops to second place behind Major League Two, then jumps back into first place in its third week. Good for Disney, yeah. And its fourth week, it falls to fourth place behind the wide release of Four Weddings and a Funeral and also the new film Cops and Robertsons. That's the uh, Burt Reynolds, right? No, that I think you're thinking Cop and a Half. Cops and Robertson is, uh, I believe, Chevy Chase and uh, Jack Palance. Palance. Yes, I think you, you're right. Yes. I, I was co- now, if they had made Cops and a Half and Robertsons, <laughs> the mashup we know we didn't need. Uh. But D2 does stay in the top 10 for two more weeks, finishes sixth and seventh, as most of the new other new releases that came out against it were like thrillers and dramas. We get movies like With Honors and also Bad Girls. It finally runs its course in May, dropping off the box office charts after eight weeks, and it grosses $45.6 million in its theatrical run. Also could not find any budget info for that. You know, we always talk about like when, that, when, the, when a movie does really well at the box office and it gets a sequel, it's kind of a given but the Mighty Ducks, the original film, only made $50.8 million. So $45.6 million for the sequel, that's not bad. And I did notice the original Mighty Ducks never finished first. And D2 got two weekends at first, although the original film did finish in the top five in its first seven weeks of release. So, All right, well, from an analysis of the box office, again, we, we've mentioned in the 1994 reformat that we've done, Chad and I are the Disney accounting marketing executives here trying to figure out when to place these films. You know, it seems like it's a very crowded landscape for comedies. And and so we've got also Oscar movies, a lot of limited releases. You know, the Oscar ceremony was March 21st that year. So a lot of the contenders were still lingering on the charts. So Angie doesn't really have any other adult dramas to compete with. So I was going to ask you, Chad, you know, should maybe they have pushed it out maybe like another month so that it wouldn't have had to 
to go up against some of those Oscar films? Well, when I initially read the synopsis of Angie, I was expecting it probably to be a a film that Disney thought would be a, at least an Oscar contender. And so maybe should have came out either late 93 or late 94 to kind of be in the Oscar conscience. But but then mm. I saw the movie and I'm like, hmm, I'm surprised this movie didn't come out in January in, in the dumping ground. So, oh, wow. You know, it's I don't know. I, yeah. I, 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 but like you said, there's no other uh, dramas to compete with. So maybe they just, you know, thought that would have, would have been a good time. And maybe they were hoping people have already seen all the Oscar yeah. movies by that point, I guess, too. But yeah, and like I said, the movie is set around Christmas time. And I did read when I was doing a little bit of research on this film, it was originally developed for Madonna. And she was in another film and she could not, that, that was going a little bit long. And so she asked Disney if they could wait for her to finish. And they're like, no, we got to get this movie out. And it was supposed to have been released. I, I think it was supposed to have been released at the end of 1993 for the Oscar push. And so it would have been set in the winter yeah. time as well. But. Yeah, you're right. Maybe it would have been better off to sit on the shelf until the following yeah. Christmas, unless there was some sort, some kind of something in Gina Davis's deal when she got that when she added to that twenty six million dollar budget. <laughs> or that well, was... and I wonder if Madonna had a pay or play con- contract. Yeah, which would also you know that's like what is it the original or the Superman Lives has such a high budget because of all the delays that everyone got paid for. That's true. That might have added to that. That's a good point. Yeah. Hey, Madonna over here. <laughs> uh, well, the ref, again, that was a Christmas movie in March. Like, at least Angie was supposed to be, like, set around Christmas. But the ref actually, Christmas plays a major part in this film. And it just seems like it could not keep up with the comedies. You said you wanted to talk about, like, why did it do so poorly at the box office? And I wanted to show you this. In the second week of its release... Eight of the nine, the top nine films at the box office were all comedies. The only one that wasn't was Schindler's List. And I feel like it just, it got swallowed up. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to read these off. This is what, if you went to the movie theater in the second week, or the, I guess this is the third week of March. This is St. Patrick's Day weekend. You, these are the comedies you have to choose from. Tell me if you're going to watch the one that's set around Christmas time with that comedian from MTV, right? So you have... Naked Gun 33 and a third, which was what? The third, obviously the third film in a very popular franchise. Mm-hmm. You have Guarding Tess, Shirley MacLaine, Nicolas Cage. I think it was, it was a pretty clever premise. You got Monkey Trouble. There's a monkey. <laughs> hey, right. uh, want to buy a monkey? <laughs> don't, don't you dare. <laughs> don't you dare. Uh, okay, Schindler's List, obviously. You have Lightning Jack. Say what you will. Crocodile Dundee was still pretty mm-hmm. popular, right? People would have wanted to see this. Ace Ventura Pet Detective was still riding high on the charts. The ref finished in seventh. And then right after that is Mrs. Doubtfire and Greed. So it's just, of course it wasn't going to compete. This, I feel like this might have been, obviously it would have been too easy to say, hey, release it at Christmas time. Maybe even like late summer or something? Because people always want to see comedies in the summer. Like, I don't know. It just, I, I, and I feel like, it, was, it didn't quite have the star power. Like I said, all these people are on their way up. Dennis Leary has just kind of become a, a little bit of a name. And I could see why this would have gotten buried behind the Robin Williams comedy and the Michael J. Fox comedy and the Nicolas Cage comedy, right? Yeah, I think if you take the same movie and release it two years later, you've probably got a better success, a better chance of having a, a more successful film on your hands. Yeah, and even if you don't want to put it out right at Christmas, yeah. you could have put it out around Thanksgiving you know, or early December and then give people a chance to watch it throughout the month. Cause I can see people getting in the season. It's, it's, it's like, 
it's snowy. It's right. It's set in Connecticut. They filmed it in Ontario. I saw, but like, I don't know. It's maybe in March. Do you want to see movies of people set in snowy terror in snowy landscapes, right? In like a lion out like a lamb. You want to think about spring and, and see green. That's right. again, that's my theory. Uh, well, we mentioned mighty ducks did pretty well. D two. It found a perfect spot. Like, the only PG-rated films on the chart when it was released were Monkey Trouble and Beethoven's Second. And Beethoven's Second had been out for like three months. So it was like good counter-programming. We talk about, I, I always love using that word because it makes perfect sense. It was great counter-programming for all those Oscar films, you know? And then even the new family films that came out after D2, movies like Clifford and Thumbelina, they weren't even close, you know? And, and then Cops and Robertson's, it started strong and it just disappeared. And so it managed to stay on the charts until May. It doesn't really lose any steam until we start getting some more family films. You know, we get Three Ninjas Kick Back. We get Clean Slate with uh, Dana Carvey, which I think, I, I, I did look it up, it was PG-13, but that seemed like it might be a comedy aimed more for a younger audience. So give credit to Disney. They did a good job with where they, where they put D2 at. Um, yeah, and speaking of Clifford, Mike, I don't know if you've ever seen it. No. But it's full Marty, full on Marty. Oh, then I best uh, probably best that I haven't. Yeah. All right. Well, from an awards consideration standpoint of all three films, there's really nothing of note. Although I did see that both Angie and the Ref got nominated for something called an Artios Award, which is from the Casting Society of America. Hmm? I mean, again, I, I already mentioned the Ref is perfectly cast, and the, and Angie has a great cast too. So and, sure. And Angie's kid didn't get a Young Artist nomination. <laughs> Yes, crying in his crib should have been. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised as well. Well, in conclusion, Chad, these three films that we've discussed would they fit the Disney ideal of these singles and doubles? I would say sure, right? You know, mm -hmm. Angie was based on a popular book, and it was, was supposed to have originally been up for awards consideration as it come out sooner. So I don't fault them for that. You know, the ref has these great up and coming stars and a, a great premise, but not sure about releasing a Christmas film in March. And then D2 was released close enough to the original that they could recast all the the cat the kids from the first film and it looked practically the same, you know. And in a, from a business standpoint, I'm sure that D2 kind of helped cover the losses of the other two. And but and the ref is still to me, I think the ref is still a popular Christmas film. I think it's the fact that it's R-rated probably keeps it from being on the ABC, whatever it's mm -hmm. called, free forms 25 days of Christmas, but I'm sure it probably gets some iTunes rental around the season, but I'll give credit to Disney for these three films. Yeah, I can't, you know, if I was sitting in the script reading room and these scripts came across my desk, I, especially, you know, with the ref, like you said, Dennis Leary, Ted Demi, Ted, Ted Demi and Randy of the Redwoods all in the cast. I, especially 1992, you know, 90, why did I keep saying 1992, 1994, you know, MTV is still going strong at that time. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah put those out and then d2 is just you know it it's a sequel and yeah yeah you, you, we know how hollywood feels about sequels yeah disney's gonna start cranking out a bunch of those yeah for sure well, yeah and i was gonna say is this the time when disney's doing all their direct-to-video animated sequels so <laughs> that's true the fact that it's got a theatrical release is something right yeah. yeah well if anybody who's listening wants to watch these films i can tell you that both angie and the ref are streaming on hoopla the streaming service from the public library as we mentioned, D2 The Mighty Ducks is available on Disney+, Plus, not a sponsor. Well, what are we going to look at on our next episode? We jump ahead to April of 1994. It's a bit of a mismatch. We get a coming-of-age drama from Touchstone, 
family film from Disney and an absolute bomb from Hollywood Pictures. And what are those films? Well, you're just going to have to tune in next time to find out. Again, my name is Mike DeKalb. You can find me on Twitter at Mike DeKalb. I also run the Out of Touchstone Twitter account. It's at Out of Touchstone. My co-host, Chad Smart, you can find him on Twitter as well, at Chad Smart. Chad, do you have any final thoughts on March of 1994's Disney Slate? Uh, you know, I get, I'm going to give the ref another viewing probably around Christmas because I, I do enjoy the film, even though I probably you know, came off a little harsh on this episode. Uh, Angie, it was nice to meet you, but uh, you can go and uh, go talk to Tony. That's fine, you know. And, and Mighty Ducks, that's the Mighty Ducks. Again, I'm waiting for season two of the, of the TV show. But I am curious in your tease for next month, this absolute bomb from Hollywood Pictures. I, I have to know will, which side of my viewing persona will come out. The one that loves it because it's a bomb or the actual more critical and rational side of my viewing personality. That movie doesn't even chart <laughs> on the box office charts. That's how big of a bomb it was. But we'll see. Hey, this is out of touch, Joe, and we're out of time. You're out of touch. I'm out of time. Out of Touchstone is a Honey Nerds production. For more information, visit outoftouchstone.com. Like and subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. So, you're cool, I'm cool, we're cool, thank you, good night.